we're coming back today to the book of Deuteronomy. So if you have your Bible, you might want to grab your Bible and open to that fifth book of the Bible. And passages like the one before us today, they have a way when you're reading through them to kind of put you back a little bit on your heels. You see, there's a, there's a shock for many who live in our culture here in the West when they read things like what we're going to find here in Deuteronomy chapter 22 today. And this shock that people have when they read a passage like this, it leads some people to feel like, man, maybe Old Testament passages of scripture need something like a trigger warning over the top of them. This is definitely one of those passages. But as I was reading through it this last week, thinking about it quite a bit, I think that the shock that some people might feel when they read a passage like this, it reveals in a sense the extent to which we in the West, we live in a strange bubble. The passage that we're gonna be in today, it deals with topics that are kind of difficult for people. Topics having to do with marriage, not necessarily a difficult topic, but topics that have to do with infidelity or divorce, fornication, even incest and, and some things dealing with rape here in this passage. And in one respect, when we see how the people of Israel, led by Moses 3,400 years ago, how they dealt with issues of infidelity, issues of fornication or rape, we are shocked in 2022 because we live incredibly sheltered lives here in the West, in Western Europe and in North America. And yet, at the same time, our culture is shocked by what we find in a passage like this because we live in a highly sexualized and highly sexually promiscuous society with very hyper liberal views on sex and sexuality where that is the norm in our culture. Now, it may seem like kind of a, a strange separation, a strange dichotomy to say that we live very sheltered lives in the West on one hand, but that we are also highly sexualized and promiscuous. And I'll, I'll talk more about that in just a little bit. So I said that a passage like this, it has a way of kind of putting us back on our heels, especially for Christians. Because see, sometimes as a Christian, as a person who believes what we read in this book, even Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy chapter 22, for Christians, we are sometimes asked to answer for the weird things that we come across in the Old Testament. Someone says to you, so you're a Christian, right? And you respond, yeah, I'm a Christian. So you, you believe what the Bible says. Yeah, I believe what the Bible says. Okay, so what do you think about those crazy things in the Old Testament where it talks about a woman being the property of her father or a woman being the property of their spouse, their, their husband? Or what do you think about a man divorcing his wife because she wasn't a virgin when they got married? Or what about when it seems to say that it's not rape if the woman didn't protest or scream when she was assaulted? Those are some of the things that we're gonna be confronted by here in Deuteronomy chapter 22. And again, we are put on our heels a little bit because someone comes to you, maybe in the office or on a school campus, maybe a family member, a neighbor, they say, you actually believe the stuff that is in that book and you're not really sure how to answer. We don't even know if there is an answer, at least not a really good one that makes sense for us living in 2022. 
And then we find ourselves not just put back on our heels, but we find ourselves in a place where we're, we're questioning our faith in the Bible. And you start to hear Christians questioning whether or not certain passages of Scripture, like one here in Deuteronomy, is, is really the Word of God. We're challenged because the Bible says in the New Testament, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we think that these things are inspired and, and even infallible in their original autographs. So what do we say about the weird passages of the Bible? So we are put on our heels because we feel like we need, to, we need to give an answer to the critic. And I find it fascinating that Christians are put in the position of having to answer for the strangeness of cultural customs surrounding things like sex and sexuality in Israel circa 1400 BC, 3400 years ago. But the critic who's bringing these things to your attention they never need to answer for the absurdness of the sexual practices of our cultural customs here in America in 2022. For example, I'm old enough to remember when the term hooking up with someone meant to just hang out with them. When I was in high school or just getting out of high school, to hook up with someone just meant that you were hanging out with them. But now, to hook up with someone, that is a casual sexual encounter. And today, some college sex statistics reveal that between 60 and 80% of young adults report that they have hooked up, sometimes with as many as 10 or more partners during their college or university experience. So it's interesting that Christians are told that they need to answer for the sexual practices of people that lived 3,400 years ago, but the critic doesn't need to answer for the crazy sexual practices of our culture today. So I'm gonna accept that what we're gonna see in a second, here in the last half of Deuteronomy chapter 22, might be strange to us living in 2022, but I think that we need to recognize that our culture's views on sexual things is equally absurd or strange, or more so strange than what we may find here. Now, all that to say that today we are going to try to make sense of a strange text, and we're also going to try to draw some application from what is admittedly, in some respects, a strange text to us looking at it through the lens of the United States of America in 2022. So with that in mind, would you open your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 22, where we pick it up today in verse 13, where we read this, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman. And when I came to her, I found that she was not a virgin. Then the father and the mother of that young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as a wife and he detests her. And now he has charged her with shameful conduct saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin. And yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Well, that's definitely culturally different the way things were 3,400 years ago to the way things are in 2022, so much so that you might look at this and say, man, that's, that's kind of bizarre what's going on in this passage. Now, I said a few minutes ago that we in the Western world, we live in a strange bubble and that we live incredibly sheltered lives. I say that because this statute from Moses, it is way strange to us because, well, in one sense, we don't get out very much. You might be wondering, what, what do I mean by that? Well, what is revealed here was not shocking 
And it was not strange to anyone who lived 3,400 years ago in the ancient Near East. But this is also not all that shocking or strange to anyone living today in 2022 in what would be called the majority world. You see, it's been said that we live here in the United States, in North America or Western Europe, we live in the weird world. And when I say weird world, that means Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, W-E-I-R-D, the Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic world. We live in the weird world. The majority world is everywhere else. Places that you would identify today as the global south or the Middle East, or throughout much of the Asian world. What was once referred to in past decades as the third world or the developing nation is now the majority world. And in the majority world, which is largely guided by the cultural principles of kind of an honor and shame society, what we find here in this passage that we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 22, this is kind of the, the way things were, the normal way of things being even today. Most of the rest of the non-Western weird world functions under the mindset of what is termed by sociologists or anthropologists as socially enforced monogamy, meaning marriage is still important in those cultures. And not just is marriage really important in those cultures, but virginity is still very highly valued among those groups of people. And sexual interaction outside of marriage, it's still considered wrong. It is immoral, it's out of step. And we don't live in that world at all. We live in a world where casual sexual, sexual encounters, hookups, are normative. It's not strange for people just to swipe right or swipe left and have a sexual encounter that has nothing connected to it. So we don't live in the world like rest, the rest of the majority world or the people did 3,400 years ago. And so these things seem weird to us. We live in a culture where sex is casual and recreational. In our world, what we read here is bizarre. And not only does it come across as bizarre and backwards, but there is a growing demographic in the weird world, our world, Westerners, who are afraid that Christians might enforce what would be termed traditional values from passages like this on them. They even make HBO shows about the fear of Christians or religious people imposing their weird traditional values upon them. But you know, what is crazy is that there are many people outside of the weird Western world and the majority world that are afraid that weird Americans might force their promiscuous absurdity upon them. Westerners look at our open liberal society as highly progressive. You've probably heard that. You hear that from friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members who say, we live in a very progressive society. And many of the rest of the world looks at us as actually rather weird and regressive. So who's right? I mean, I'll leave that up for you to think about. It's not exactly the focus of what we're talking about here today in the book of Deuteronomy, but it's definitely something to consider. I will simply say this though, as Jesus did a couple thousand years ago, as he was interacting with some people about various things going on in his culture, and he said, wisdom is justified by her children. Outcomes are important. So it is interesting just to look at the outcomes in our culture. Is our hyper-sexualized, promiscuous society leading to a better culture, a better society? Or is it causing significant issues? Something to consider. Now, I'm not saying that to say, oh, we need to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 through 16 or 17 that we just read. I'm not saying that. But it is something to consider, which is better, which is a 
more fulfilling life to live, a promiscuous life or a life that has a focus on monogamy? I certainly have my answers on that, but something for you to think about. Anyway, back to what is going on here in Deuteronomy chapter 22. 3,400 years ago, virginity was highly valued, especially as, and this is really important, prosperity and success. In ancient times among the people that Moses was leading, prosperity and success was not really the same as what we think of when we think of prosperity and success in our day. Prosperity and success for people living in Israel 3,000 years ago was inextricably linked to long life, lineage, and legacy. In other words, you were seen as successful and prosperous in the ancient world. If you had a long life and a large household, that is a lot of kids, lineage, and you were able to leave something to them, a legacy to your descendants. Now again, think about that just for, for a quick second. In our weird world, the Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic world of the West today. Success and prosperity are linked to things like power, like political power, or position, celebrity, how much possessions you have, how popular or prominent you are, and it's connected to pleasure. If you can get a, a lot of stuff and have a lot of sex and be an influential celebrity, then you are considered prosperous in the weird world. So that's the world that we live in. The aim and the goal of a lot of people in our culture today is to be well-known, to have a lot of pleasure and a lot of stuff. That's how you become prosperous. In the rest of the world, 3,400 years ago, and even in much of the world today, a long life, a full house, that is a lot of kids, a big family, and something to leave to your family, those were the things that were greatly valued. Again, who's right? Something to ponder, something to think about. Anyway, if long life and descendants, a lineage, legacy, if those things are important, then marriage and family are essential. And, and look at our culture today. Marriage and family do not seem to be as essential or as important, or even a large household and an extended family. That's not something that's highly valued in North America or throughout Western Europe. But in ancient times, those things were highly valued. And because those things were highly valued, marriage and family are essential. They are important. And if those things are important and essential, then you would value a good name for yourself and a good marriage for your kids. But what if you had a daughter and she was betrothed to marry a man and after they were married and the marriage was consummated, so the wedding night is over, the honeymoon, you could say, is over. What if that man who married your daughter, he decided that now he doesn't want her? So to get rid of her, he brings charges against her of sexual misconduct before they were married. He accuses her of not being chaste. Those charges, if it was determined to be true and that kind of culture, both 3,400 years ago and today in cultures where marriage and virginity and family and all these things are highly valued, those charges would destroy her and they would probably destroy you. She would be, after that point, if he was able to put her away, divorce her, because he said that she had conducted herself with a lack of chastity before they were married, she would be unmarriable and unable to have children, and you would lose your standing in the culture, in the society. Your life would be cut short, your lineage would be cut off, and your legacy would be lost. So this is a really big deal. Now, thinking about these things, 
also causes us to really at least have a bit of an understanding about how marriage worked 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. Marriage customs among the Jewish culture 3,000 years ago were quite different from the marriage customs in our culture today. A Jewish girl was often married fairly young in her early teen years, and a Jewish man, they were married not too much later than that. And generally, by the time that the man was, was 20, he was married and he had a family and everything moving along. But a Jewish girl would enter into the betrothal process prior to marriage, and during that betrothal period, could last a year or more, during that time, the man and the woman, they were considered married. Though they hadn't been with each other, they hadn't lived with each other, they hadn't interacted sexually, they, they weren't married in the sense of their husband and wife joined together, living under the same roof and engaged with one another sexually, but they're married legally. And if during that period of time, that betrothal period of time, if during that period of time, the, the wife, the betrothed wife ended up pregnant or was found to be engaging physically, sexually with someone other than her betrothed husband, then she could be put away. She could be divorced. And she could even be prosecuted for adultery, as we're going to see in this passage. And if that happened at that point, then great shame would come upon her and her family. Her life would be kind of cut short. She would not be able to have children, and the legacy of that family would be lost. So how do you ensure against such a thing happening within that culture? Well, enter in this very strange thing for 21st century Western readers. We have here this proof of virginity. Look at verse 15. It says, Then the father and the mother of the young woman where these charges have been brought against her shall take and bring up the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. This is totally bizarre for us. But there, there are two potential explanations among commentators as to what is going on here. Either what's going on here, this proof is proof of the most recent, and I know this is kind of weird, this is strange, but this would be the proof of the most recent menstruation for this woman as proof that she was not pregnant. You know, they didn't have pregnancy tests back then to where, you know, see if there's two lines on there. If there's two lines, then you're pregnant. The only way to know if a woman was, was or was not pregnant during that period of time was the, the menstrual cycle. So they would bring proof that she was still menstruating and she was not pregnant at the time of the marriage and that she had not been unfaithful. So that's, that's one explanation of what's going on here. So the, the proof of virginity might be that, or the other proof of virginity, uh, written by one commentator on this passage, he says, on the marriage night, the wise bride provided herself with a marriage cloth that would be stained with her blood at the consummation of the marriage, her first sexual encounter. This would be proof that she was indeed a virgin when she was married. If later on her husband said otherwise, she and her parents could present the marriage cloth as evidence. No faithful woman would want her reputation blemished or her future destroyed just because of a hateful man's lie. So admittedly, this is a strange passage and a strange custom for us living here in the West in 2022. But this is the way things were 3,000 years ago, and this is the way things still are in certain places in the world today, in the majority world. So we read here in verse 16, And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man, as his wife, and he detests her, and now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin, and yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Verse 18, then the elders of the city shall take 
that man and punish him, the guy who has lied about his wife, and they shall fine him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife and he cannot divorce her all of his days. The husband that falsely charges his newly wed wife with shameful conduct. He is to be punished. He's to be beaten by the elders of the city, kind of like a proper whooping. And he's going to be fined a hundred shekels of silver, which, as we're going to see in the rest of this text, that would assumably be about double the bride price, equivalent, as one commentator says, to about 10 years of normal wages. So like a pretty big fine going on here. And that guy would be unable to divorce his wife for her entire life, his entire life. Now, Again, we look at this as super strange, and yet such things are still observed in the majority world. Our, our friends, missionaries that we support over in the Middle East who were serving for many years in the Sudan, they were sharing with us just this last week. We were looking at this text and they happened to drop by for lunch and they said when they were serving in Africa, in Sudan, this was still the custom in Sudan just within the last 10, 15 years. This is the normal sort of thing in other parts of the world. Totally strange to us, but this is the way things are in a lot of other places. And even though this is weird to us, and it seems totally out of place, it gave rights to women who were, and often still are, overlooked and oppressed. One commentator on this passage, he said, the law protected the woman and punished the man. That's what we see in this passage. And generally, this speaks to us that the people of God highly valued marital fidelity and they punished false charges against it. Now, the question comes up, but, but what if it was determined that she was unfaithful? That what the husband is saying about her was actually true. She actually was unfaithful. Well, there's a word for that. We're told about what they were to do in verse 20. But if the thing is true and evidence of virginity is not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. If it is determined that the charges against her were actually true, then the family of this girl is disgraced because the woman has done a disgraceful thing in Israel and she is put to death. And we look at this, we say, this is bizarre. This is crazy and it's heavy. So our critical neighbor, our coworker or family member, they say to you or they say to me, the Old Testament orders the death of a unchaste fornicator or adulterer. What do you think about that? Should we capitally punish adulterers today? That's what your Bible says. What are you going to say? And well, this, that is what this passage says. You are correct. The Old Testament highly values marital fidelity and it punishes both false and true charges against marital fidelity. How do we deal with that? How do we answer the critic about these passages? How do we make sense of this passage? How do we draw out application from it? Well, I'll answer it or begin to answer it in this way. The New Testament book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28, anyone who rejected Moses' law, book of Deuteronomy, who, anyone who rejected Deuteronomy, the book of uh, Moses' law, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's a heavy concept. The law brings death. It is a heavy burden to bear. 
And not only does the law bring death, but also the law is holy and it is righteous or just. And the scriptures say it is good. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, he says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law, it's holy, the commandment, holy, just and good. But man, is it heavy. It's holy, it's right, it's true, but it is a heavy burden and it kills. And it doesn't just kill the unchaste, non-virgin virgin. Verse 22 of Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says, If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. So this is adultery. If you find a woman sleeping with a guy who's not her husband, both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. The critic says to you, doesn't your Bible say that adulterers should be put to death? And you say, well, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22 does say that those who commit adultery, both the man and the woman shall die. They shall be stoned together. The law is holy. It's just. It puts forth a form of justice and it is heavy. It is true. And it is heavy and burdensome and it kills. The people of God bear the burdensome weight of the law. And it, it's not just that. It's not just putting to death the, the woman who is adulterous or the man who's adulterous with her. It's not just, you know, beating up the guy who brings false charges against his wife in this situation. But, but going on, look at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 23. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring both of them to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. There's a lot of heavy, bizarre stuff going on here in this passage. This one is a stumbling block for a lot of people, and I get it. Suppose you find a man and a woman, and they are engaged sexually. It, it seems to imply that you've caught them in the very act that they're engaged sexually, and he is not her husband, and she is betrothed or engaged to another man. How do you handle the situation? Well, the law here, it says that both of them shall die, and she's going to die with him because she did not cry out. And because she did not cry out in the city, it must have been consensual. She must have been consenting to this union. Marriage and marriage fidelity were of high value to the people of God. And, and really, in reality, they should be. To God, marriage is important. As the scriptures reveal, God created marriage. He is the one who invented it. So he gets to define what marriage is. He orders what it is and what its purpose is. So why is marriage so important to God? Why? I mean, this text makes very, very clear to God in his law, marriage is really, really important. So why is marriage so important to God? Well, for decades, I have been meeting with couples that are getting ready for marriage and I do weddings and I always meet with a couple and do some premarital counseling with them. And in my premarital counseling, I, I share with them the first time that I meet with couples what we find in the scriptures as to why marriage is important to God. I give seven reasons why marriage is important to God and why it should be important to God's people. The first reason that marriage is important to God is because God created men and women to be partnered together as husband and wife. So marriage, one of God's purposes for marriage is partnership. He who made them from the beginning, male and female, he is the one that joins them together as husband and wife to be helpers one to another. So the very first reason that God 
made marriage for a man and for a woman is that they be joined together as partners. Second is provision. God intended that marriage would be in a, a place where a man provides for his wife and the woman also cares for her husband. So it's partnership and it's provision. Also, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and in Proverbs chapter 5 and the entire book of Song of Solomon that marriage was created not only for partnership and provision, but also for pleasure. The husband and the wife, they enjoy the pleasure of one another in marriage. And generally speaking, that pleasure enjoyed in marriage results in the fourth reason that God made marriage, procreation. So partnership, provision, pleasure, procreation. The very first commandment of the scriptures is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where it says that God made them male and female, and he commanded them, be fruitful and multiply. So why is marriage important to God? Well, it's important for partnership, it's important for provision, for pleasure, for procreation, but also, fifthly, not only is it important for procreation, but it is important for purity. Marriage is a guard to keep us from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about that in the New Testament. So you have partnership and provision, pleasure, procreation, purity. I'm sure you're noticing a lot of P's here. Sixth, perfection. God uses marriage to bring about our sanctification. God uses your spouse, if you're married, to change and transform and sanctify you, to help you become a better man or a better woman. I believe that in a God-ordained marriage, as marriage is intended to be practiced between a man and a woman, that God uses marriage as a sanctifying influence in our lives to make us better. And then finally, and this one I think is really important, marriage is a picture. So partnership, provision, pleasure, procreation, purity, perfection, and a picture. A picture of what? Well, the book of Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that this Marriage union, this covenant, is a picture of the relationship that our God desires to have with us. It is a picture of the oneness relationship that he wants to have with you. So, so these seven reasons, partnership, provision, pleasure, procreation, purity, perfection, and a picture. And that last one, the seventh one, the final design for marriage, is one of the reasons that I believe that God is so serious about marriage and expects that marriage be honorable among all and that the marriage bed be undefiled and that fornicators and adulterers God will judge as Hebrews chapter 13 says. Marriage is one of the most beautiful representations of the relationships that God desires to have with us. Remember, we are called, Christians, the church are called the bride of Christ and the bride price that he paid for us was very high. He died to make us his bride. And so the people of God value marriage because God has highly esteemed it. So, Moses, what more do you have to say about this whole thing? Deuteronomy chapter 22, he goes on, verse 25. But if a man finds a betrothed woman in the countryside, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. Once again, Moses gives a command that protects the woman and punishes the man in what here is very clearly rape. Remember, they didn't have a police force or an investigative team to look into all the forensic issues surrounding a potential rape 3,400 years ago in the land of Canaan. So their way of determining 
if there was a crime, a crime of rape, and dealing with the criminal was to us somewhat rudimentary, but even so, as crude or as unsophisticated as you might find it to be, they still acknowledged that a crime was committed and intended to deal with it in a just way. They valued women. They cherished chastity. They honored marriage because God had highly esteemed marriage. But all of those ones, they're weird, but maybe not quite as weird as the next one. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 28. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, the bride price, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her, and he shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. That one's very weird, as if the other ones weren't. But there is some question amongst scholars and commentators as to whether or not seizing here in this passage is forcibly seizing this young unmarried woman sexually, as in rape, or if this was a consensual act. The text is not perfectly clear, which means there are two, you know, not so great interpretation paths here. Is this passage teaching that if an unmarried man rapes an unmarried woman, then she has to marry him? And he's never able to divorce her? Because that not only seems bizarre, that seems absurd. Or is this teaching that if an unmarried man and an unmarried woman are found to be engaged sexually, acting consensually, then they are to be married and he can never divorce her? Again, the text is not entirely clear, but the core general principle remains in this passage. Even if this is strange to us, the core principle that is being driven home here in this passage is that monogamy is important to God. God esteems marriage. God values fidelity in marriage. God detests divorce. He honors chastity. And the heaviness of the laws regarding marriage and marital fidelity, they, they show that all these things are true. They bear this out. The statutes of Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomic statutes, judgments regarding marriage, they are, they're heavy for us. There is a burdensome weight to the law, which extends to one final word in this passage, the last verse of Deuteronomy chapter 22. It says, a man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. This is apparently an incestuous relationship of a man with his stepmother, which before God is a sinful act. The law is holy. It is right. It is true. Its decrees are just and its judgments are good. And the people of God bear and carry out the burdensome weight of the law. And yet the law's greatest and most important work is not, it's not judgment. Ultimately, the greatest and most important work of the law is that it points to Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament says that the law is our schoolmaster. It's our tutor directing us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith in him. The law points us to Christ. And, and as it points us to Christ, Jesus in his teaching, he makes the law even heavier. And, and not only does he make the law even heavier, but he carries the weight of the law for us so that he might fulfill it on our behalf so that we might find mercy and grace, forgiveness and salvation in him. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus, the very one who came to bear the weight of the law on our behalf, he was conceived and he was born under challenging circumstances, which go back to this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Mary, the mother 
of Jesus was found to be with child. She was pregnant by the Holy Spirit during her betrothal period to the man who would become her husband, Joseph. And Joseph had a decision to make. He was given the opportunity to divorce her. She was betrothed to him and it turns out she's pregnant. So he has the decision, should I divorce her? Should I make a public show of her or even have the law prosecute her for infidelity? And then we read in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, these words in chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, he's legally her husband, betrothed to her. They haven't been joined together yet. Being a just man and not wanting to make a public example of her, minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary as your wife for what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. If anyone understood the heavy, burdensome weight of the law as it related to marital fidelity, it was the family of Jesus. But as I said, Jesus is teaching as it relates to marital fidelity. He makes it even more heavy than, than Moses, more burdensome than Moses. Jesus makes the law heavier in that he says that it isn't just the physical acts of fornication or adultery that are damnable under the law, but it is lust in the heart that is worthy of the same punishment. He said in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it has been said of those of old time, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He increases the weight of the law. But not only does he increase the weight of the law, he also deals with my sin and your sin, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law on my behalf. He did that on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might receive his righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So he did all that on the cross so that he might have mercy and give forgiveness to the adulterer. You say Jesus gives mercy to adulterers? Indeed he does, which is good news, gospel news, because there isn't a person alive that isn't ultimately an adulterer of heart if Jesus' words are true in Matthew chapter 5. So how does Jesus give mercy to the adulterer? John's Gospel chapter 8, we read, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. We caught her in the very act. And now Moses in the law commanded us that such a one should be stoned. Going back to Deuteronomy 22, but what do you say? And this they said to him, testing him, that they might have something with which to accuse him. But Jesus, he didn't respond. He stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said, he who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And again, he stooped down and he wrote in the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning from the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman and said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. There is so much that I could say about this beautiful exchange in John chapter eight. 
but that'll probably have to wait to another day. For now, I'll set aside what I'd probably like to say and simply say this, the people of God rejoice in God's mercy because we frequently fall short of his perfect standard. And we need the forgiving grace of the Lord. Jesus bore our sin upon the cross. He fulfills the, the burdensome weight of the law on our behalf so that he could give us forgiveness and mercy and grace and salvation. And then he says to us, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Isaiah the prophet, he, he saw this day coming, Jesus bringing forgiving grace and mercy to sinners like you and like me and like this woman who was caught in the midst of adultery there. He foresaw this and he wrote about it in Isaiah chapter 53 where we read this, Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed because all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus he fulfilled all the burdensome requirements, all the weighty requirements of the law for you and for me so that we would not be judged by the harshness, without mercy, the harshness of the Old Testament law. Yes, the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy chapter 22 is a burden too heavy for us to bear. And it points us to Jesus who bore all of it for us. We read this and we say, I could never keep this and no society could handle following these things in Deuteronomy chapter 22 perfectly because they're too heavy and they are too heavy. But Jesus, he bore all of it for you and for me so that he could give us forgiving grace and he could say to us, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Father God, I pray that we would take to heart the words of Deuteronomy chapter 22 and that we would seek to honor marriage in the same way that you honor marriage because marriage and fidelity in marriage are important to you because that marriage relationship is supposed to be an illustration of the relationship, the oneness relationship that you desire to have with us. So Lord, help us to honor it, that the marriage bed would be undefiled, it would be honored by us. But Lord, help us also to recognize in the areas, all the ways that we fall short that you are the one who bears the heavy weight of the law so that you can give us forgiving grace and you can say to us, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you, but walk in rightness. God, help us by your Holy Spirit to do just that this week, to walk in righteousness. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.